This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kelly, Pembroke, Georgia. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 4, Chapter 9. Give Thy Thoughts No Tongue. Shakespeare. The Baron St. Foy, whom anxiety for his friend had kept awake, rose early to inquire the event of the night, when, as he passed the Count's closet, hearing steps within, he knocked at the door, and it was opened by his friend himself. Rejoicing to see him in safety, and curious to learn the occurrences of the night, he had not immediately leisure to observe the unusual gravity that overspread the features of the Count, whose reserved answers first occasioned him to notice it. The Count, then smiling, endeavored to treat the subject of his curiosity with levity, but the Baron was serious, and pursued his inquiries so closely that the Count, at length, resuming his gravity, said, "'Well, my friend, press the subject no further, I entreat you, and let me request also that you will hereafter be silent upon anything you may think extraordinary in my future conduct. I do not scruple to tell you that I am unhappy, and that the watch of the last night has not assisted me to discover, Ludovico, upon every occurrence of the night, you must excuse my reserve. "'But where is Henry?' the Baron said with surprise and disappointment at this denial. "'He is well within his own apartment,' replied the Count. "'You will not question him on this topic, my friend, since you know my wish.' "'Certainly not,' said the Baron, somewhat chagrined, "'since it would be displeasing to you. "'But methinks, my friend, you might rely on my discretion, and drop this unusual reserve. However, you must allow me to suspect that you have seen reason to become a convert to my system, and are no longer the incredulous knight you lately appeared to be. Let us talk no more upon this subject, said the Count. You may be assured that no ordinary circumstance has imposed this silence upon me towards a friend, whom I have called so for near thirty years, and my present reserve cannot make you question either my esteem or the sincerity of my friendship. I will not doubt either, said the Baron, though you must allow me to express my surprise at this silence. To me I will allow it, replied the Count, but I earnestly entreat that you will forbear to notice it to my family, as well as everything remarkable you may observe in my conduct towards them. The Baron readily promised this, and after conversing for some time on general topics, they descended to the breakfast-room, where the Count met his family with a cheerful countenance, and evaded their inquiries by employing light ridicule, and assuming an air of uncommon gaiety, while he assured them that they need not apprehend any evil from the north chambers, since Henry and himself had been permitted to return from them in safety. Henry, however, was less successful in disguising his feelings. From his countenance an expression of terror was not entirely faded. He was often silent and thoughtful, and when he attempted to laugh at the eager inquiries of Mademoiselle Byrne, it was evident only an attempt. In the evening the Count called, as he had promised, at the convent, and Emily was surprised to perceive a mixture of playful ridicule and of reserve in his mention of the North apartment. Of what had occurred there, however, he said nothing, and when she ventured to remind him of his promise to tell her the result of his inquiries, and to ask if he had received any proof that those chambers were haunted, 
His look became solemn for a moment, then seeming to recollect himself, he smiled and said, "'My dear Emily, do not suffer my lady abbess to infect your good understanding with these fancies. She will teach you to expect a ghost in every dark room. But believe me,' added he, with a profound sigh, "'the apparition of the dead comes not on light or sportive errands to terrify or to surprise the timid.' He paused and fell into momentary thoughtfulness, and then added, "'We will say no more on this subject.' Soon after, he took leave, and when Emily joined some of the nuns, she was surprised to find them acquainted with a circumstance which she had carefully avoided to mention, and expressing their admiration of his intrepidity in having dared to pass a night in the apartment whence Ludovico had disappeared, for she had not considered with what rapidity a tale of wonder circulates. The nuns had acquired their information from peasants, who brought fruit to the monastery, and whose sole attention had been fixed since the disappearance of Ludovico on what was passing in the castle. Emily listened in silence to the various opinions of the nuns concerning the conduct of the Count, most of whom condemned it as a rash and presumptuous, affirming that it was provoking the vengeance of an evil spirit thus to intrude upon its haunts. Sister Frances contended that the Count had acted with the bravery of a virtuous mind. He knew himself guiltless of aught that should provoke a good spirit, and did not fear the spells of an evil one, since he could claim the protection of a higher power, of him who can command the wicked and will protect the innocent. "'The guilty cannot claim that protection,' said Sister Agnes. "'Let the Count look to his conduct, that he do not forfeit his claim. Yet who is he that shall dare to call himself innocent?' All earthly innocence is but comparative, yet still how wide asunder are the extremes of guilt, and to what a horrible depth may we fall! Oh! The nun, as she concluded, uttered a shuddering sigh that startled Emily, who, looking up, perceived the eyes of Agnes fixed on hers, after which the sister rose, took her hand, gazed earnestly upon her countenance, for some moments, in silence, and then said— you are young, you are innocent. I mean, you are yet innocent of any great crime, but you have passions in your heart, scorpions. They sleep now. Beware how you awaken them. They will sting you, even unto death. Emily, affected by these words, and by the solemnity with which they were delivered, could not suppress her tears. Ah, is it so? exclaimed Agnes, her countenance softening from its sternness. So young and so unfortunate. We are sisters, then indeed, yet there is no bond of kindness among the guilty, she added while her eyes resumed their wild expression. No gentleness, no peace, no hope. I knew them all once. My eyes could weep, but now they burn, for now my soul is fixed and fearless. I lament no more. Rather let us repent and pray, said another nun. We are taught to hope that prayer and penitence will work our salvation. There is hope for all who repent. Who repent and turn to the true faith, observed Sister Frances. For all but me, replied Agnes solemnly, who paused and then abruptly added, My head burns. I believe I am not well. Oh, I could strike from my memory all my former scenes. The figures that rise up like furies to torment me, I see them when I sleep. And when I am awake, 
They are still before my eyes. I see them now. Now. She stood in a fixed attitude of horror, her straining eyes moving slowly around the room, as if they followed something. One of the nuns gently took her hand to lead her from the parlor. Agnes became calm, drew her other hand across her eyes, looked again, and sighing deeply said, They are gone. They are gone. I am feverish. I know not what I say. I am thus sometimes, but it will go off again. I shall soon be better. Was not that the vesper bell? No, replied Francis. The evening service is past. Let Margaret lead you to your cell. You are right, replied Sister Agnes. I shall be better there. Good night, my sisters. Remember me in your horizons. When they had withdrawn, Francis, observing Emily's emotion, said, Do not be alarmed. Our sister is often thus deranged, though I have not lately seen her so frantic. Her usual mood is melancholy. This fit has been coming on for several days. Seclusion and the customary treatment will restore her. But how rationally she conversed at first, observed Emily. Her ideas followed each other in perfect order. Yes, replied the nun. This is nothing new. Nay, I have sometimes known her to argue not only with method, but with acuteness, and then in a moment start off into madness. Her conscience seems afflicted, said Emily. Did you ever hear what circumstance reduced her to this deplorable condition? I have, replied the nun, who said no more till Emily repeated the question, when she added in a low voice, and looking significantly towards the other boarders, I cannot tell you now, but if you think it worth your while, come to my cell to-night, when our sisterhood are at rest, and you shall hear more. But remember, we rise to midnight prayers, and come either before or after midnight. Emily promised to remember, and the abbess soon after appearing, they spoke no more of the unhappy nun. The Count, meanwhile, on his return home, had found M. Dupont in one of those fits of despondency which his attachment to Emily frequently occasioned him, an attachment that had subsisted too long to be easily subdued, and which had already outlived the opposition of his friends. M. Dupont had first seen Emily in Gascony during the lifetime of his parent, who, on discovering his son's partiality for Mademoiselle St. Aubert, his inferior in point of fortune, forbade him to declare it to her family, or to think of her more. During the life of his father he had observed the first command, but had found it impracticable to obey the second, and had, sometimes, soothed his passion by visiting her favorite haunts, among which was the fishing-house, where once or twice he addressed her in verse, concealing his name, in obedience to the promise he had given his father. There, too, he played the pathetic air, to which she had listened with such surprise and admiration, and there he had found the miniature that had since cherished a passion fatal to his repose. During his expedition into Italy his father died, but he received his liberty at a moment when he was the least enabled to profit by it, since the object that rendered it most valuable was no longer within the reach of his vows. By what accident he discovered Emily, and assisted to release her from a terrible imprisonment, had already appeared, and also the unavailing hope with which he then encouraged his love, and the fruitless efforts that he had since made to overcome it. 
The Count still endeavored with friendly zeal to soothe him with a belief that patience, perseverance, and prudence would finally obtain for him happiness and Emily. Time, he said, will wear away the melancholy impression, which disappointment has left on her mind, and she will be sensible of your merit. Your services have already awakened her gratitude, and your sufferings her pity. And trust me, my friend, in a heart so sensible as hers, gratitude and pity lead to love. When her imagination is rescued from its present delusion, she will readily accept the homage of a mind like yours. Dupont sighed while he listened to these words, and endeavoring to hope what his friend believed, he willingly yielded to an invitation to prolong his visit at the chateau, which we now leave for the monastery of St. Clair. When the nuns had retired to rest, Emily stole to her appointment with Sister Frances, whom she found in her cell, engaged in prayer, before a little table, where appeared the image she was addressing, and, above, the dim lamp that gave light to the place. Turning her eyes as the door opened, she beckoned Emily to come in, who, having done so, seated herself in silence beside the nun's little mattress of straw, till her orisons should conclude. The latter soon rose from her knees, and, taking down the lamp and placing it on the table, Emily perceived there a human skull and bones, lying beside an hourglass. But the nun, without observing her emotion, sat down on the mattress by her, saying, "'Your curiosity, sister, has made you punctual, but you have nothing remarkable to hear in the history of poor Agnes, of whom I avoided to speak in the presence of my lay sisters, only because I would not publish her crime to them.' "'I shall consider your confidence in me as a favor,' said Emily, "'and will not misuse it.' "'Sister Agnes,' resumed the nun, "'is of a noble family.' as the dignity of her heir must already have informed you. But I will not dishonor their name so much as to reveal it. Love was the occasion of her crime and of her madness. She was beloved by a gentleman of inferior fortune, and her father, as I have heard, bestowing her on a nobleman, whom she disliked, an ill-governed passion proved her destruction. Every obligation of virtue and of duty was forgotten, and she profaned her marriage vows. But her guilt was soon detected, and she would have fallen a sacrifice to the vengeance of her husband, had not her father contrived to convey her from his power. By what means he did this, I never could learn, but he secreted her in this convent, where he afterwards prevailed with her to take the veil. While a report was circulated in the world that she was dead, and the father, to save his daughter, assisted the rumor and employed such means as induced her husband to believe she had become a victim to his jealousy. "'You look surprised,' added the nun, observing Emily's countenance. "'I allow the story as uncommon, but not, I believe, without a parable.' "'Pray proceed,' said Emily. "'I am interested.' "'The story is already told,' resumed the nun. "'I have only to mention that the long struggle which Agnes suffered between love, remorse, and a sense of the duty she had taken upon herself in becoming of our order, at length unsettled her reason. At first she was frantic and melancholy by quick alternatives. Then she sunk into a deep and settled melancholy, which still, however, has at times been interrupted by fits of wildness, and of late these have again been frequent. 
Emily was affected by the history of the sister, some parts of whose story brought to her remembrance that of the Marchioness de Villeroy, who had also been compelled by her father to forsake the object of her affections for a nobleman of his choice. But from what Dorothy had related, there appeared no reason to suppose that she had escaped the vengeance of a jealous husband, or to doubt for a moment the innocence of her conduct. But Emily, while she sighed over the misery of the nun, could not forbear shedding a few tears to the misfortunes of the Marchioness, and when she returned to the mention of Sister Agnes, she asked Frances if she remembered her in her youth, and whether she was then beautiful. "'I was not here at the time, when she took the vows,' replied Frances, "'which is so long ago, that few of the present sisterhood, I believe, were witnesses to the ceremony. Nay, ever Our Lady Mother did not then preside over the convent. But I can remember when Sister Agnes was a very beautiful woman. She retains that air of high rank, which always distinguished her. But her beauty, you must perceive, is fled.' I can scarcely discover even a vestige of the loveliness that once animated her features. It is strange, said Emily, but there are moments when her countenance has appeared familiar to my memory. You will think me fanciful, and I think myself so, for I certainly never saw Sister Agnes before I came to this convent, and I must, therefore, have seen some person whom she strongly resembles, though of this I have no recollection." "'You have been interested by the deep melancholy of her countenance,' said Francis, "'and its impression has probably deluded your imagination, "'for I might as reasonably think I perceive a likeness between you and Agnes, "'as you, that you have seen her anywhere but in this convent, "'since this has been her place of refuge for nearly as many years as make your age.' "'Indeed,' said Emily. "'Yes,' rejoined Francis. "'And why does that circumstance excite your surprise?' Emily did not appear to notice this question, but remained thoughtful for a few moments, and then said, "'It was about that same period that the Marchioness de Villeroy expired.' "'That is an odd remark,' said Frances. Emily recalled from her reverie, smiled, and gave the conversation another turn, but it soon came back to the subject of the unhappy nun, and Emily remained in the cell of Sister Frances till the midnight bell roused her when, apologizing for having interrupted the sisters' repose, till this late hour, they quitted the cell together. Emily returned to her chamber, and the nun, bearing a glimmering taper, went to her devotion in the chapel. Several days followed, during which Emily saw neither the Count or any of his family, and when at length he appeared, marked with concern that his air was unusually disturbed. "'My spirits are harassed,' said he, in answer to her anxious inquiries, "'and I mean to change my residence, for a little while, "'an experiment which I hope will restore my mind to its usual tranquillity. "'My daughter and myself will accompany the Baron St. Foy to his chateau. "'It lies in the valley of the Pyrenees. "'That opens towards Gascony. "'And I have been thinking, Emily, that when you set out for the valley, "'we may go part of the way together.' It would be a satisfaction to me to guard you toward your home. She thanked the Count for his friendly consideration, and lamented that the necessity for her going first to Thalouse would render his plan impracticable. But when you are at the Baron's residence, she added, you will be only a short journey from the valley. 
and I think, sir, you will not leave the country without visiting me. It is unnecessary to say with what pleasure I should receive you and the Lady Blanche. I do not doubt it, replied the Count, and I will not deny myself and Blanche the pleasure of visiting you, if your affairs should allow you to be at La Valley. About the time when we can meet you there. When Emily said that she should hope to see the Countess also, she was not sorry to learn that this lady was going, accompanied by Mademoiselle Byrne, to pay a visit for a few weeks to a family in Lower Langdoch. The Count, after some further conversation on his intended journey, and on the arrangement of Emily's, took leave, and many days did not succeed this visit, before a second letter from M. Cunel informed her that he was then at Toulouse, that La Vallée was at liberty, and that he wished her to set off for the former place, where he awaited her arrival with all possible dispatch, since his own affairs pressed him to return to Gascony. Emily did not hesitate to obey him, and, having taken an affecting leave of the Count's family, in which M. Dupont was still included, and of her friends at the convent, she set out for the loose, attended by the unhappy Annette, and guarded by a steady servant of the Count. End of Volume 4, Chapter 9 Recorded December 2008 in Pembroke, Georgia